Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a great joy to read the Bible this morning. We have two readings that Ben will be preaching on. Uh, the first one is Psalm 119, verses 9 to 24. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. I am not a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. No, I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws all the time. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and stray from your commands. Remove me from scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. And the second reading is from the book of Timothy. Chapter 3, verses 14 through to chapter 4, uh, verse 8. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how the people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come, th such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry, and they ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value above all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Oh, it's a good thing our Heavenly Father is sovereign and knows what's going on. Because I've got to say, I made a few blunders this morning. First of all, uh, I'm very sorry to you, Kay. <laughs> um, you received the wrong Bible readings, but I was very glad to let you continue with uh, 1 Timothy from chapter 3 as opposed to 2 Timothy. Because would you believe uh, there's actually a fair bit of significant overlap because it's the same author and the same God. Thank you, dear sister. Second of all, I decided to show up this morning without any leading notes, without any sermon notes either. 
Uh, that's since been rectified, and uh, thanks to the people that know and operate all sorts of tech things, both here and at Harrington Park. Uh, I'm going to lead us briefly in prayer, and you might like to have your Bibles open at Psalm 119, but as the, we're in the middle of a topical series, as I said earlier, we're going to be jumping all over the spot, and so I will put the words of Scripture on the screen as well. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who speaks, and that you speak to us in your Word, and that you change us uh, by your Spirit at work within us who uses your word as the sword, the thing to effect change in us. We pray that as we consider uh, the importance of your written word today, uh, you'd help us to lay aside hindrances and distractions that get in the way of us learning so that we might grow to become more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the old saying that the Christian life is not so much a sprint, but a marathon, yeah. Uh, turning in repentance to God and putting our trust in Jesus means that no matter how terrible our sins, we find complete forgiveness and renewal and are absolutely assured, 100% assured of an eternity in God's presence. But in the here and now, we'll also be at odds with the values of the world and also with our own residual sinful tendencies. That's why the writer, for example, of the book of Hebrews needed to tell us constantly to get rid of the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. It's also why the Apostle Paul saw it as vital that we get constantly strengthened in the faith as we run that race. Uh, successful marathon runners keep themselves in good physical fitness uh, and so too followers of Jesus who are going to go the distance uh, keep ourselves in good spiritual fitness and that is why strengthen is one of the four S's of our strategy for living out God's grace. Uh, you'll have noticed by now that our uh, S's uh, also have a few qualifying words after them. We don't just seek, share, strengthen, serve, we seek the lost. We share, of course, the gospel and our lives, as Gav uh, brought to us last week. Did he bring that to us last week? He was here last week, praise the Lord. <laughs> and uh, we strengthen ourselves and one another by God's Word, and of course, we serve others in love. Now, when it comes to strengthen, why is it the case that uh, strengthening happens by God's Word? I mean, why not strengthen ourselves and one another by committing to church gatherings? Why not strengthen ourselves and one another by being committed to prayer? Obviously, both those things are vital. Why not be strengthened by the powerful work of God, the Holy Spirit, who's at work within us? That's clearly vital. Well, for evangelicals, that's us, the Bible is the highest authority in all matters of faith and conduct. And that's because what the Scripture says is what God says. But the evangelical understanding of the place of the Bible has often, and I suspect will often, continue to come under attack. One writer puts it like this, does the fullness of life which Christ came to bring really have to involve paying such close attention to the Bible? Does our new life in the Spirit 
really need to be centred around what seem to be comprehension exercises on biblical texts? Surely Christ came to call us to be disciples, not bookworms. Indeed, did Jesus not reserve some of his harshest criticisms for the groups such as the Pharisees and teachers of the law, taking them to task for being obsessed with rightly interpreting tiny details of Scripture? One Bible scholar who wants to encourage Christians away from the evangelical view of Scripture would argue it's not primarily the Bible that is the Word of God, but Jesus Christ. I do not think one could find a single Christian who will dissent from this proposition, but to do so would plainly to be to commit what is sometimes called bibliolatry, the elevation of the Bible above Christ himself. Christians are not those who believe in the Bible, but those who believe in Christ. And so I ask the question, are we right to hold that the fuel for persevering and growing in the faith, for running that Christian race, is looking carefully, first and foremost, to the Scriptures, to the Bible? Are we right to hold that the first port of call when it comes to strengthening ourselves and one another is the Word of God? And if so, why is it the case and how does it strengthen us? And of course, that's what we're going to consider together now. And the way we're going to do it is by looking at the relationship, I guess, between God and His written Word, which we have in our book, the Bible. We begin, uh, point one, by looking at the relationship between God the Father and His written Word, the Scriptures. Uh, hopefully you've noticed, because you've read it once upon a time, the first page of the Bible uh, shows you that God is acting and that if He's acting or doing something, often the way that's happening is that He is speaking. Uh, God's speech and God's action are often one and the same. Uh, if I, for example, using my speech, declared, I will now witness John Dumbia float up to the ceiling, then, uh, well, there was an activity that took place, I spoke, but I kind of made myself look silly. That's all. If I was to now, if I was to, to desire that, that, that Kate here would stand up and dance and I decided I would declare, we will now witness Kate stand and dance. <laughs> she may, out of the kindness of her heart, indulge me, but that's the problem, isn't it? See, either way, it makes it like... That she will do that is not the basis of my speech, it's, it's actually all on her. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, she decided to make it happen. But when God desires that there be light and He says, speaks the words, let there be light, then the only possible outcome, the only thing that can happen, of course, is that light appears. The way God makes the light is by speaking. And as the Scriptures progress, we realise that God's speech is not limited to time and place. The reason we still have light in the day and darkness in the night uh, is because God continues to sustain things. And how does He sustain them? Well, we're told, by His Word. Uh, for example, when confronting Job about the wrongness of Job's uh, challenge to God, uh, God speaks and He says, Job... Where were you when I said about the sea, 
this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Note the speech, verse 12. Have you, Job, ever given orders to the morning or show the dawn its place? God sustains things by his word. Secondly, God also makes it clear that uh, not only his spoken word, but his recorded word, his written word, or a term I think we should all know, his inscripturated word, that which is inscribed from where we get the term scripture. His inscripturated word is something whereby he is acting continually. To give you an example of that, taken from uh, the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, uh, God's speaking about the provisions for a king for his people Israel and he says these words, when an Israelite king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. You see, God's assumption is that the ongoing hearing of his written word will have a certain effect on the king and on the people. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that God alone ultimately takes credit for people being sanctified, that is, made holy, made more into his image. And so, therefore, it must be the case that God is continuously acting through his written word. Finally, it's obedience to the Father's Word by which we're saved and by which we continue to be made holy. Uh, Jesus declares this uh, to be the case in one of my favourite, I guess, speeches. It's actually a prayer of Jesus uh, in John chapter 17. Uh, Who's familiar with John chapter 17? Jesus prays for you. Uh, he He prays at the time for future followers, which includes you who are in Christ. But uh, it's, it's kind of staggering to see how much he assumes that the Father's Word is what is saved and what continues to make us holy. I'll go through the prayers, uh, John, uh, Jesus speaking to God, John 17, he says, Father, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me and so I revealed you to them. Well, not quite, he said I revealed you but how will they have obeyed your word. Verse 8, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. Verse 12, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, which of course is Judas, so that scripture, i.e. your written word, would be fulfilled. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not uh, of the world any more than I am of the world. Notice how much Jesus assumes that God's, the Father's word, has saved, is the the agent, I I guess, of salvation for his followers. And not only that, but the thing that actually continues to keep making them holy. So Jesus says, sanctify them, Father, by the truth. And in case you missed it, your word, Father, is truth. That's how they're sanctified. That's how they're made holy. Jesus himself believes that God's word is what saves and continues to sanctify believers. He believes 
uh, that his followers will be made holy on account of being exposed to God's word, which of course is now inscripturated and by which God continues to act. Simple question, do you agree with Jesus? Do you think his understanding is correct? If you do, you realise it's uh, not a choice of believing in Jesus versus believing in the Bible, as that, uh, frankly, false teacher wrote that I showed you at the beginning. Because anyone who does believe in Jesus will therefore believe that salvation and sanctification happen by God's now written word. Uh, in logic, philosophical logic, we call that, that kind of argument a false dichotomy. You can't believe in, in the Bible, you have to believe in Jesus. That's stupid. As a matter of fact, you can't believe in Jesus unless you believe the Bible. And if you do believe in Jesus, you will believe in the Bible. It's, it's that simple. Hence, the psalmist could write, which we had read out at the beginning, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth, God. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I will meditate, that is, I'll carefully study on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Well, what then of the relationship of God the Son to scripture well jesus himself is introduced to us as well someone tell me john chapter one the really famous intro to the gospel of john how is jesus what's jesus called right at the beginning does anyone want to yell it out yeah there it is the word of god in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god so the word made flesh is is how jesus is presented to us uh, in the gospel and that's really sensible because Jesus, he embodies both the fullest revelation and the central activity of God. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for your sin and for mine, uh, in a way that not even the wisest person in the world could ever have worked out or imagined, God was revealing himself, the absolute heart and core of his being to you and to why. Uh, no one would have thought this, that the God of the universe would show you his inmost being, his core, his essence, as a man being crucified, a criminal on a cross. But here is the holy God who therefore judges and punishes sin yet who at his very heart is incredibly and infinitely loving and merciful for Jesus died for us. But Jesus also believes and teaches that the scriptures are as vital to life as food. Uh, I assume most of you will be familiar with uh, the time of testing that Jesus had in the wilderness, uh, where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and of course the devil comes and challenges Jesus to do something that Jesus could certainly very easily do if he wanted, turn the stones into bread. It's extraordinary that Jesus responds to Satan by quoting from Scripture. Now, Jesus, who is himself the Word of God in flesh, Jesus who speaks with all the authority of his heavenly Father, who can just as easily say, I tell you, as he can say, it is written, because they're one and the same thing, it carries the same authority as the word of God, he chooses to quote 
from Deuteronomy 8. He says to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Except he doesn't, because sneaky Ben got in here and I blanked out the first few words just to make you appreciate them even more. What Matthew 4.4 actually says is Jesus answered, and this is part of what he says to Satan, Satan, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus sees the written word as having the power to thwart the work of the devil, and in doing so, he affirms that it's to be considered as important, if not, I would now argue, more important than food, than the daily food we need to sustain us. Just as food sustains us bodily, well, we need the written word of God to sustain us in our spiritual life. In fact, on the basis of Jesus' teaching here, I think it's right to say that for Christians, God's word is more important than food. Growing strong in the faith means regularly feeding on his word. Uh, Friends, if the only time you're being fed from the word of God is once a week at church or maybe twice if you throw in growth group, then you're an extremely malnourished Christian and you're at risk of starvation. When it comes to being strengthened as one of God's people, Jesus affirms his Father's teaching that we don't live on bread alone but on every word that we now have recorded in the Bible. Thirdly, Jesus assumes that for his followers, there are truths in God's word that you and I could never possibly know except for the fact that God has revealed them to us. Our natural thinking, your natural way of thinking, my natural way of thinking and intuition cannot lead us to many of the important truths about God. Uh, For example, when Peter, the Apostle Peter, came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And God continues to reveal things that we couldn't naturally know through the reading of his written word. Did you notice in the reading, the first one from Psalm 119, the psalmist could say, be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I'm a stranger on earth, do not hide your commands from me. I mean, this is the same guy who knows the written word, who probably has it in front of him, who says, I'll meditate, I'll recite your laws and statutes, but he still sees fit to ask God to reveal truths that, by himself, he simply could not know. The same thing happens with our natural intuition. Uh, There's always ways that we naturally think about God that are kind of different to what he reveals of himself in the Scriptures. I thought of a couple of sort of left-field, mildly trivial trivial examples um, just from the Word of God, and I'll test them out on you guys, see how we go. Uh, Who reckons, if if you had to guess, right, if if you just sort of had to guess, who reckons God ever sings? Who put up your hand if you reckon God is a God who sings? Not many. Oh well, Zephaniah 3.17, speaking about the return of the exiles, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you and his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. What do you know? 
Uh, we know that people in heaven will be in the presence of Jesus, obviously, right? Question, who reckons people in hell will be in the presence of Jesus? Can we be in the presence of Jesus in hell? Yeah, a few more people. The ones with your hands up, correct. Revelation 14, a third angel followed them, said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on their forehead or on their hand, that's a long-winded way of saying anyone who's rejected Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Verse 10, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Which makes perfect sense. Jesus inherits all things. He owns all things. He rules all things. Jesus is the ruler of hell. Satan will suffer in hell under the rule of Jesus in his presence. Of course, a really common one that kind of matters more than Bible trivia is that we so easily suppose that if we've sinned really bad or stuffed up again and again and again in the same area, that God is increasingly reluctant to forgive and see us restored. But the truth given in the Word of God is that God is delighted to forgive. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 18, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered away? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing, he does not will, that one of these little ones, i.e. one of his disciples, should perish. God's heart and desire is for forgiveness and restoration he doesn't reach out like sort of tentatively oh yeah i suppose i can forgive them again it's it's what he he longs to do the more we neglect the bible the more we subconsciously conjure up ideas about god that are at risk of being patently false our hearts they're perfect at manufacturing false gods so we need to rely on the scripture just like we rely on food to stay spiritually strong. Jesus' own teaching makes it painfully obvious that we really are strengthened by God's Word. Uh, One last quick thing about the Son, Jesus, in relation to Scripture. Uh, The way He continues to sustain all things, which He does, is, of course, the same way as God the Father, that is, by His Word. We learn in Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Jesus is our God who speaks. Interestingly, in that same book of the Bible, the writer would refer to the written Word, therefore, as living and active. Finally, we come to the relationship between God the Spirit and Scripture. In some circles, increasingly, it's fashionable to see the Spirit's voice separated from the inscripturated Word of God. That's a great shame because the Bible spends a surprising amount of time emphasising that the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit, is far more joined than separated from the Word. Indeed, one of the primary roles of God the Spirit is what theologians call the illumination of Scripture. The Spirit's sword, that is metaphorically His effective action, is the Word of God. As one hears and responds to God's Word, 
so we are witnessing the Spirit's activity. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin put it like this, the Word is the instrument by which the Lord dispenses the illumination of His Spirit to believers. For they know no other spirits than Him who dwelt and spoke in the Apostles. Translation, the same God who taught the hearers and inscribers of God's Word is the Spirit who enables us to understand and apply the Scriptures today. You want to see God the Holy Spirit working? You want to see God the Spirit working powerfully? in your life, well, you should expect that to happen as you read the Bible. This is really helpful to grasp because when you and I read the Bible, we're reading words written a long time ago, different people, different time, different culture, and so that it's kind of easy for us to start thinking that God's written word is foreign, is inaccessible, whereas some sort of contemporary personal spiritual revelation will be much more sensible of God, don't you think? But the one constant character in the Word is, of course, God Himself. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. The same God who appeared at Mount Sinai and who spoke uh, uh, with His people is the God who now, by His Holy Spirit, communicates and acts by His written Word. It's like the author of the book is sitting right next to you to explain the meaning as you read it and let the words take their proper effect. Notice again, I said it before, but I say it again, that the psalmist, even though he's familiar with God's laws, would still say, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. The content of the Scriptures was completed many centuries ago, but the author of the Scriptures is right here with us, ensuring that their correct meaning and application continually impact our lives in accordance with His will. He does this by His indwelling Holy Spirit. So, you and I are right to pray, dear God, open our eyes that we may see the treasures of Your Word. In the Bible, give us the understanding that we need. Do make this your prayer, by the way, as you come to read the Scriptures, won't you? By the way, if you ever want to see in the New Testament where the... Uh, the, the Old Testament Scriptures are quoted in the New and their human author is, is ascribed, uh, the, the credited as writing them, but also God the Holy Spirit is spoken of as continually uh, reading and applying them. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. It's a great thing to do, read through Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, every part of my Bible teaching sort of personality wants to go through that now, but we hear... We'll be here for half an hour if I do that, but uh, indulge your pastor, 3 and 4 of, of Hebrews, to see that it takes the Old Testament word, assumes it's current in terms of its application, and that it's currently being spoken by God the Spirit to the reader. Now, for those of you who are, are into the practical application stuff, uh, which I hope is all of you, and I hope you're still awake, uh, brushing your teeth is what I've written up there. Why on earth have I done that? Well, I'll tell you. Who brush, Put up your hand if you brush your teeth. Take note of the people whose hands aren't up, by the way. Lord, help us. You brush your teeth. I brush my teeth. I seldom look forward to it with any sort of degree of great excitement, except maybe if I've been on a camp for a while or something like that, you know. Uh, so my, my goodly wife every now and then, oh, I can't wait to brush my teeth. I hate the furry feeling, you know. 
And when I do brush my teeth, I'm not there expecting some amazing, enthralling experience. Uh, sometimes my children seem to have an enthralling experience when they brush their teeth. But, but if that's the case, if I don't look forward to it, I'm not excited about it, and it's not going to be that great, you know, nothing to sort of harp on about, well, why do I keep doing it? Well, it's obvious. I don't want my teeth to rot. You've just got to keep, you know, getting rid of the gunk and keep applying whatever the stuff in the toothpaste is so you don't... Your teeth last longer. Well, there it is with the Word of God, is it not? You don't necessarily expect something to be so amazingly, you know, you're going to become super Christian if you read 10 chapters and going to have the best week ever. Well, maybe not. Maybe, but, you know, who knows? But if you don't do it, then spiritually you start to rot. You just, your heart manufactures the false ideas about God. You need to, you need to get rid of that decay. You need to get rid of that stuck in your teeth stuck in your spiritual teeth thing just do it regularly what about the non-reader people i always hear oh i'm not a big reader you know it's boring it's hard to pick up a bible and whatever well first of all you live in the 21st century thank god you've got this thing that you can hold and it will read the thing for you my goodness like how good is that compared to what you can drive in the car and listen to the word of god being read and taught you can ask someone else to do it there, like, you know, you'll do it with a gym buddy to get accountability, we'll do it with a, a Bible reading buddy or something like that. Physical training, as Kay, under God's sovereignty, read out for us, is of some value, but training in, in, in godliness is of value both here and the life to come. Second thing is that the regular practice at Grace and Lincoln Church, here at our other congregations, is to preach and read systematically through the Bible. What does that mean? Today's sermon is Leviticus 14. You know what that means next week's sermon is? It's Leviticus 15. You know what the, the sermon after is? Leviticus 16. If you actually believe the written Word is the Word of God and God's going to speak to us, then it only is right, as your normal practice, to go through all of the Scripture systematically in the way that it's being given, which is our regular practice, I recognise the irony that we're currently in an exception to our norm, we're doing a, a topical sermon series, but that's the whole point, this is a, a worthwhile exception to what will be normal. Uh, this for me is a make or break thing with a church by the way, this is important enough to be a deal breaker, if uh, uh, one day you decide to go from some other church, why would you, uh, and <laughs> you go and, and you realise that it is not the normal thing to systematically go through the Word of God, that's a no, that's a deal breaker. That says it must only ever say that whoever's in charge is actually setting the agenda more than God. Uh, it says that the word, I'm kind of above the Word of God and I'll show you why. Who remembers last year when we did the Leviticus sermon series and there was that stuff on omissions and blood and sex and all the really, like what preacher, if they were just deciding to preach, would think, I know what I'm going to speak on Oh, this guy is going to speak on that the ladies in the room are going to love to... Of course you wouldn't do that, but that's in the Word of God. I'm driven, I'm captive by what God has revealed in His Word, and that's what we're up to, that's what we're going to do. Church is not teaching systematically, you don't go there. You go to another one that does. Finally, uh, this is a very left-field uh, application, try to excel in edifying service. Edifying means building up others. Paul himself spends a whole chapter of the Bible telling people this. What is most helpful and most edifying? Well, there are all kinds of gifts that we use to help one another. 
There's someone's prepared meals for a mum who's just had a baby this week, probably. There's someone who's driven someone to get here this morning, probably. There's someone who's running the, the, the sound, who's playing the keyboard, who's putting the chairs out. Someone's going to pack up after. There's millions of ways that we serve, and you're going to hear about serving next week. But where you can, where you have the choice or the ability to sort of exercise the word gifts, the teaching gifts, like the people teaching the kids at, at kids' church, where you might be able to do that, give that priority, says the Apostle Paul. Choose to, to use the things that strengthen one another, particularly because they convey or emphasise or, or, or enforce truths of the Word of God. Easiest example ever, singing. Congregational singing in the New Testament is a ministry of the Word of God by which we teach and admonish one another. If you don't sing, repent, start singing. Uh, and do it for the benefit of others. That's the whole... I mean, Paul, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 14, he takes two sort of areas. One is speaking in a foreign language, which is called tongues. The other one is uh, a prophecy, which, with a number of caveats, is speaking or teaching the Word of God, essentially, to one another. He says, if I speak in a language no one can understand, if I pray in a tongue, I edify myself. In other words, I'm selfish. It's actually a put-down. Whereas if I teach the Word of God, I edify the church, I build up others, I look for stuff like that. Um, I think the restrictions on singing are sucky and I'm glad that we don't have them, as John said. Uh, I got to the point last week at night church where the, the mass and the singing, I said, I could only bring myself to say the government says we should do this and I just leave it up to you, right? That's, that's getting a bit ridiculous. Um, but I, you know, I hear of people who think, well, well I'm not going to show up at church because we can't sing. You see how self-centred that is? It's like saying, I, I care more about my sort of particular view than I do about the people of God who I could encourage by other way by saying things if I showed up. You see how that works? Try to excel in serving the church and the church is especially well served in word ministry. For Christians, God's word is more important than food. Growing strong in the faith means feeding on his word. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate and who rightly sees your written Word as the means by which we come to know you and continue to grow in holiness. Father, as often as we eat or as often as we brush our teeth, may we see the need uh, to be uh, engaging with your Word, the Scriptures, Thank you that we live in an era where there's so many ways that truths of Scripture can be impressed upon us. Pray that with the psalmist, we would be the people who delight in your word, who meditate it, who, who will not neglect the reading of it. And Father, where we are able, we pray that you would help us to excel in ways of strengthening and building up one another, particularly when it comes to teaching your word to one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, because you enjoy having my pretty face here, I'm also going to continue, uh, having heard from God, we're going to speak to Him, so I'm going to lead us in a, a time of prayer. Will you pray with me together? Dear Heavenly Father, how wonderful to meet together, to praise You, to hear from Your Word. Almighty Father, we pray for our government, we pray 
or the complexities of the issues that they have to deal with. God, give our government wisdom and compassion for all people. We thank you that we do live in a democracy where we have a voice, where we vote and that we're able to express our views to politicians. We continue to pray for COVID around the world and for governments as they grapple with how best to move forward. Father, we thank you for the way that our government has been able to contain things quite well within Australia and we're so thankful that we live in a country that allows churches to gather and to praise your name. Heavenly Father, we pray for our church leaders. We pray that you'll protect them and guide them. Help them, Lord, to keep their eyes fixed on you. We pray for people in their lives to sharpen them and to point them to you. We pray that in all circumstances they will turn to you and your word and that they will continue to be refined. God, we pray for wisdom as they seek to lead the different congregations. And God, we pray for the homeless as winter uh, is now upon us, mostly. We pray that different organisations and churches may be able to find a way to practically love and care uh, for homeless people, but also uh, to spread the love and the truth of your word in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray for compassion. We thank you for the work they do around the world and God, we pray that you continue to give them wisdom as they navigate the complexities of COVID-19 around the world. We pray that compassion will still be able to teach and support thousands of children during this pandemic. Help each of us, Father, boldly to go into this week unashamedly proclaiming your name in accordance with your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.